passage this morning is from Romans 3, 19 to 31. It's on page 941 in the Pew Bible. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in, G- in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his defined forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word. invite you to keep your uh, Bibles open to Romans chapter 3. We look at this text together. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the declaration in your word that there is hope for sinners like me like all of us, Lord. And that hope is given to us through Jesus Christ. So as we look into your word this morning, would you help us to see you? Would you help us to see you in your beauty and your majesty, your holiness and your mercy? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, um, nearly, will be 500 years ago on Tuesday, October 31st, 1517, he was not trying to start a new church. He was trying to start a conversation. Luther was troubled by what he saw as abuses in the Roman Catholic system of relics and indulgences, people were being offered forgiveness of sins and freedom from purgatory without any real change of heart or behavior, but simply by going through a religious motion, or even worse, by giving money to the church. As one historian described it, Luther sought to defend the Pope and indulgences from the bad name that abuse would give them. 
In his 95 theses, Luther was being a good Catholic. But within four years, what began as a debate over the application of indulgences became a battle for the very truth of the gospel. Are sinners justified by faith or through works of righteousness and penance? Is Christ our sufficient Savior or does he need help? from priests or saints? Is God's grace enough to save us, or do we have some part to play, some role to contribute in our own salvation? Do the scriptures have the last word in sorting all of this out, or can the church supersede or amend them? And just who gets the glory in all of this, after all? Though he would never have dreamt it at the time, Luther's actions that day triggered one of the most important seasons of spiritual renewal in the history of the church, what we call the Protestant Reformation. And as our congregation stands in that stream of Protestantism, uh, we want to recognize that milestone of 500 years this morning, which is not to say that everything that the Protestant Reformation produced was healthy or biblical, Nor is it to say that everything that Roman Catholicism produced was spiritually bankrupt. That's not the point. Rather, our goal this morning in recognizing our Reformation heritage is to celebrate the heart of our Reformation faith, which is to focus on Christ and the fact that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. That's what we want to celebrate this morning. And to do that, we're going to the heart of the book of Romans. It was actually Paul's letter to the Romans, open before you, that triggered this spiritual awakening in Martin Luther's life. Of that experience, Luther wrote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in Romans 1.17, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it's written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Therefore, I began to understand, Luther writes, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. What Luther discovered about justification by faith in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes particularly clear in chapter 3 where we find the theological heart of his letter to the Romans. In the context of the book of Romans itself, Paul is writing to the ancient church in Rome in order to build up their faith in Christ, that that faith might then overflow in obedience to God for the sake of his glory. That's Paul's aim in this letter. That's what he was trying to accomplish among the church in Rome, and a big part of what he was trying to help 
the Christians there sort out was how to make sense of a question that we don't often ask anymore today. How do we make sense of the inclusion of Gentiles, of non-Jews, into God's covenant family when up until the arrival of Christ, uh, that family was almost exclusively Jewish and was often marked by one's obedience to Israel's law. Now, all of a sudden, in Paul's day, there are uncircumcised Gentiles being included in the community of faith, while circumcised Jews are being told that they're not in. How can God do that? That was one of the big questions this young church was trying to sort out. If if uncircumcised Gentiles can be part of the community, but some of the circumcised Jews aren't, What about God's promises to Israel? What was the point of the law and Jewish heritage if you could be considered righteous before Israel's God without keeping Israel's covenant? That didn't make sense. It it almost seemed to them like God was being unrighteous in how he was accomplishing his plan. So that's the big picture question that Paul's answering in this book as he tries to encourage their faith. And his answer to how can God be righteous when, when some who are not from Israel are, are being included in the community, uh, have salvation in God, and others who, who have the ancestry of Israel aren't, Paul's answer to that big question is the same answer Luther discovered in his crisis of faith. That God shows his righteousness and fulfills his covenant not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By justifying all who believe in Jesus. All meaning both Jew and Gentile through faith in Jesus Christ. If you think about that answer in the categories of the Reformation, we might say that we are justified by faith alone through Christ alone, uh, through grace alone, which comes from Christ alone, is anchored in the scriptures alone and results in glory to God alone. We often call those the five solas, Latin word for only or alone, uh, the five solas of the Reformation Sunday, and, uh, of the Reformation. And since it's Reformation Sunday, I want to unpack this passage according to those five categories. Sola fide, which is faith alone. Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. So we want to look at this passage and understand uh, what Paul is saying here about the heart of our faith. And we have to start with faith alone. And what Paul means when he talks about justification. As Paul says in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what does justification mean? That's kind of a technical term. You're not going to drop that in conversation uh, at work probably or anything like that. Uh, So what in the world does that big word mean? Uh, Justification is a technical term and it comes from the world of the law court. So this is legal terminology. To be justified is to be declared righteous. In the right, not guilty of the charges against you. 
So if you're charged with breaking the law in some way, and you're summoned to court to face trial, that trial will typically end in either one of two ways. You will either be convicted, condemned, found guilty, or you will be acquitted, vindicated, found not guilty, declared righteous, in the right, justified. That's what the word means. So justification in biblical terms is a declaration of one's righteous standing before God's court of law. It's a declaration of one's righteous standing before God's court of law that you are righteous and not guilty of the charges against you and therefore welcome into relationship with a holy God and the joy of eternal life with him and his people. That's what justification is declaring, our right standing before God. But if we are in need of justification, that means that there are certain charges that have been leveled against us. So what are those charges? What, what indictment has been brought before court? That's what Paul spends most of chapters 1 through 3 talking about. And he begins in chapter 118 by saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is committed to dealing justly with sin and all wrongdoing. Any way that any human has ever fallen short of his standard, broken his law, mistreated anyone else, God is committed to dealing justly with our sin and rebellion against him. That's the charge. And it's an indictment leveled not just against Gentile sinners, as many Jews in Paul's day were wont to believe, but toward all of humanity, both Jew and Gentiles. He says in chapter 2, God will render to each one according to his works. There will be tribulation and distress For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek or Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, no partiality, which means we find ourselves under that indictment as well, every single one of us. Paul summarizes in chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What do you do when you get accused of doing something, even if you know you're guilty? You start making excuses, right? Every mouth is stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God's indictment is universal. His wrath is being revealed to all humanity, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that wrath means being shut out from God's presence for eternity. In a word, hell. That's what he's talking about. And so what defense do we have? What sort of 
legal strategy. This is a pretty serious indictment. These are serious charges. This is eternal life and death. What's our defense strategy in the face of those charges? What kind of uh, strategy are we going to come up with and lean on in order to try and get those charges dropped, to be vindicated, justified of the charges against us, and therefore accepted by God? Well, for many of the Jews in Paul's day, that was a no-brainer. We have the law. We, we've got our, our ticket, our defense. We're the descendants of Abraham, to whom God gave the covenant of circumcision, right? Making us his people. And, and it was our ancestors who received the law at Mount Sinai when God made Israel his people. So as long as we're walking in accordance with that law, we're in the clear. We will be justified by works of the law. That was Israel. That was the Jews' legal strategy in, G, in uh, Paul's day. And, and we come up with our own defense strategies as well today. Uh, we might not appeal to Israel's law, but we, we come up with our own versions of it, right? If I can just do more good things than bad things by the time I'm done with this journey through life, as long as the scale tips a little bit in favor of the good, God's got to accept me, right? Or if I go to church regularly, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I get baptized or take communion, God's going to accept me, vindicate me, he'll justify me according to those works. This was a big part of what Luther had struggled with in his day. Rome had turned relationship with God into a religious system of merit and penance and performance. And this drove Luther crazy, literally. Uh, because on the one hand, unrepentant people were simply using the system to buy their way out of purgatory, while his own honest pursuit of repentance and righteousness only buried him deeper and deeper in guilt. Because he knew none of his righteous acts would ever be good enough to make up for his sin before a holy God. They'd never be enough to cover his own sin. He hated the righteous God who punishes sinners because he knew that his defense strategy was busted. And so you can see how it was like water to a thirsty and dying soul or, or entering paradise through open gates when God opened Luther's eyes and heart to what Paul is saying here in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received not by works, but by faith. The liberating message of the gospel 
is that my defense before God does not lie in my own behavior or accomplishments, but in the behavior and accomplishments of Christ my Savior, with whom I am united by faith. That is the liberating message of the gospel. And that hope is for all who believe. That's Paul's major point here. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, young, old, rich, poor. As Paul says in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. One God, one way of acceptance by that God, one means of justification by faith. Apart from Christ, we all stand universally condemned. But God's offer to salvation is for everyone. It's for everyone. And we take hold of it not by works of Israel's law or Rome's law or any of our laws that we might come up with, but through faith in Jesus. Through faith that he is who he says he is, God's eternal son, our savior, our king, who died for sins and rose again, and that he has done, and and, and placing the full weight of our hope in who he is and what he's done. Faith in Christ. So that's why faith alone is such a cornerstone to the church's witness, to the church's life and hope. But it raises a question. How can a righteous God justify the ungodly? How can he declare sinners not guilty when in point of fact they are actually guilty? That seems like a bit of a miscarriage of justice. How can God be righteous and still do that? That brings us to the second cornerstone of the Reformation, which is grace alone. Grace alone. If our defense strategy before God is based on what we do, or have done, or promise to do, when in point of fact we're actually guilty... We're in a bit of trouble, right? Uh, We have no leg to stand on. If if I've been charged with vandalism, and there are three or four witnesses who saw me do it and are willing to show up in court, and there's video evidence of me tagging several buildings downtown, does it matter that I'm a pastor or that I volunteer at my kid's school? Does any of that change the fact of whether or not I'm guilty? No, not at all. And so, if my defense strategy is based on what I do, I'm in trouble. But if our defense strategy before God is based on grace, on God's undeserved favor for those who actually deserve his wrath, then that changes everything. That changes everything. Our actual guilt is no longer the determining factor in our verdict. Think about that. God issues his verdict according to his grace. It's a gift. And and that's exactly what Paul says 
our defense is rooted in. Look again at verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. God has looked upon sinners who are actually guilty, who deserve the full extent of his holy wrath, and pronounced them not guilty. Not because they deserved it, but as a gift. As a gift. That's absolutely incredible. That's absolutely incredible. But how is it possible? Isn't that a miscarriage of justice to declare sinners not guilty? On what basis is God able to offer such a gift and still uphold his righteous name, his righteous word and character? Yeah, that's one of the questions that the Jews in Paul's day were wrestling with as they watched some Gentiles included in the kingdom of God and some Jews excluded. It felt like God wasn't keeping his word. Well, that brings us to the third cornerstone of the Reformation, and that is Christ alone. Christ alone. There's only one way that God can be righteous and declare sinners righteous at the same time. There's only one thing that makes grace possible, and that is the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 24. Here is the foundation of it all. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So it's the redeeming work of Christ that makes justification possible. While our works fall short, miserably short, of God's glory, Jesus, God's eternal Son, was the perfect covenant keeper who perfectly reflected and displayed God's glory in his life on our behalf. During his life, he fulfilled Israel's law, which then qualified him to offer himself as our substitution in his sacrifice on the cross. That's what Paul talks about when he says God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a a sacrificial offering that bears God's wrath in place of the one who offers it. So uh, you think of the Old Testament. God made provision for Israel's sin by uh, instituting several kinds of sacrifice maybe through an, a bull or a goat that would be offered in place of Israel to bear the penalty of their sin. You can think of the Passover lamb as a core example of that. The lamb dies in place of the firstborn son, or, or you think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. So there was this system in place to help deal with Israel's sin, but as the author of Hebrews reminds us, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was a sign pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. He goes on, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
His work was done. Waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is all we need. Jesus is all we need. He is our perfect substitute, our sinless Savior. He lived his life of righteousness and perfection in place of ours, the life that we were supposed to live before God, but couldn't and and wouldn't. He did that for us and then took the full weight of, of the justice of God against our sin that we deserve, the full weight of God's wrath on himself on the cross so that he might bear that weight in our place. So you come back to the courtroom Here we are, standing guilty before the judge. We've fallen short of what we were created and called to do, and we've done what we were commanded not to do, and we know it. And in walks our defense attorney, Jesus, who doesn't lay out a whole bunch of evidence of our righteousness, but look at all these things he's done. Nor does he make excuses or defenses for our sin. Well, if you'd have known what she was going through at the time. Rather, he takes our place, offering his righteous life to our credit and taking upon himself our sentence of death. It's the great exchange. And that's what makes grace possible. Jesus paid it all. And and this is how God demonstrates that he is truly righteous in how he fulfills his covenant and accomplishes salvation for his people. It's how he is righteous in dealing justly with sin while counting sinners not guilty. Jesus didn't convince God to overlook our sin or to be less wrathful, just ease up a little bit. Nor did he make a plea bargain or some sort of bribe. Rather, he willingly received the fullness of God's wrath in our place so that God's righteousness would be upheld in dealing justly with sin and God's mercy would be upheld in dealing mercifully with sinners. Paul puts it, through Christ our Savior, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ alone is our sufficient Savior. And so here's the deal. If you try to add something to Christ's work, your own merit, the merit of some departed saint, You're no longer trusting in Christ. You're no longer depending on grace. You've turned back to a religion of works. Christ is our sufficient Savior. He needs no help from his mother Mary. No help from the saints or the priests. No help from you or me in order to intercede before his Father on our behalf. His blood is is enough. His blood really is enough. 
And we know this to be true because of the fourth pillar of the Reformation, Scripture alone. If you notice um, how Paul does not anchor his argument in tradition or in a church office. He anchors it in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. That's the basis for why he's arguing what he's arguing. That's his modus operandi through the whole letter of Romans. Clear back in chapter 1, he anchors his message in the Holy Scriptures. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So from beginning to end, Paul is anchoring his message in the scriptures. If you keep the legal analogy, Paul's not basing his argument on a long tradition of legal opinions and case law. He's going straight back to the Constitution. He's going to the source and standard scripture itself. And he does it right here in our passage as well. If you look again at chapter 321, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What he argues here about the sufficiency of Christ and justification by faith, he doesn't pull it out of thin air. The very law and prophets, which is shorthand for the Old Testament, they bear witness to it. This is what God said he was going to do. In his holy scriptures. The old covenant law was never meant to be the basis of entering into relationship with God. Rather, if you read it correctly, it was always pointing forward to Christ. And so as he argues in verse 31, Paul's not overturning the law by by putting Jesus forward and saying, everyone who believes in him may be justified by faith, uh, Jew or Gentile. He's not overturning Israel's law. Rather, he's upholding that law because that's what the law said would happen. And he knows this through God's authoritative word. And the result of all of this, the result of God accomplishing his plan of salvation through Christ, not the law, justifying sinners by grace through faith according to the scriptures, The result of everything that God is doing here is that God alone gets the glory for it. God alone gets the glory for his great saving work. And that's the fifth cornerstone, the fifth sola. Glory to God alone. If we contribute to our defense strategy, if we can point to things that we've done or promised to do and and those actually carry weight in convincing God to drop the charges? We have something to boast about then, don't we? I played a role in this. We get to share in the credit for our salvation. But if justification is not by works, but through faith in Christ and the grace afforded by the cross... Well then, as Paul says in verse 27, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. We have nothing to boast about because we receive this as a gift, not as our due. 
There's no room for boasting as though we had something to do with procuring our salvation. God alone deserves the credit for it because God alone accomplished it. All glory belongs to him. You know, how silly would it be if, if you received a costly gift from someone, just this precious thing, to go around bragging to everybody about how you earned it? It would be silly, right? But it would be more than silly. It would be unethical. It would be deceptive. And so it is when we try to claim any credit for our relationship with God. We're actually stealing from Him the glory that He alone deserves for what He's done in our life. That, again, was one of the motivations of the Reformation. By, by departing from Scripture and, and advocating a system of merit, credit for salvation went to almost anybody but God. We got the glory. But Paul will have none of this, and neither should we. God alone deserves the glory for salvation because he alone accomplishes salvation. Paul writes in, in Romans 4, 1 through 3, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the faith? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. His justification was a gift from God, undeserved, unearned, unmerited, received only by faith. And the same is true for us. And so, therefore, only one person deserves the glory. Only God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the message of Scripture. This is what the Reformation fought hard to reclaim. My defense before God does not lie in my own behavior, my own accomplishments, but in the behavior and accomplishments of Christ my Savior with whom I am united by faith. And so where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where is your boast? In what do you glory? In your own accomplishments? Or in the cross of Christ? On what faith are we standing? And what message are we holding out to others? What message will we pass down to future generations? May it be Jesus Christ. Nothing less, nothing more, nothing else than Christ, our sufficient and glorious Savior, who died for our sins and rose again in accordance with the Scriptures, that by believing in Him, we might have life. May that be our boast and our hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it is your grace 
that even enables us to call you Father. And it is your Son in whom we are united by faith that enables us to stand before you knowing that we are guilty and yet receiving your beautiful, justifying verdict. Thank you that that because of Christ, when you look at us, you see the righteousness of your Son on our behalf. And when you look at our sin, you see how it has been taken up and folded in to the cross of Christ. It has been dealt with fully. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you for that truth. And we confess we bring nothing to the table to make it our own. It is all of grace through faith because of Christ according to Scripture, for the sake of your glory. And we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.